The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Okay, John Gibbons is with us for our weekly environment spot and we just heard there in the 5 of 5 from Ben that the head of the United Nations now talking not about global warming but global boiling. Is that not a bit of an exaggeration? Yeah, good evening, Matt. I, I wish it were. Um, just to throw a couple of stats uh, onto the fire, so to speak. Um, from the start of July, Matt, every day for the first 26 days in July 2023 have been hotter than any other day in history ever recorded, right? This instrumental record, by the way, goes back to about 1850. So it's a detailed global instrumental record. There's never been a month like July 2023. Records Since recordings began. With recording time. And then when they hindcast and model this backwards, they reckon that 2023 is shaping up to be the hottest year in 125,000 years. Now, of course, there's, there's, uh, there's uncertainties in there. Of course there are. And I know that certain people will pounce on uncertainties. But science is all about exploring uncertainties. We shouldn't be afraid of them. But I think what's happened so often in this discussion is people uh, pounce on uncertainties, exaggerate them. And then when the really bad stuff starts to happen, we all look surprised. Because, of course, the thing about uncertainty is, okay, it might be uncertainty on one side of the argument. In other words, it's not as bad as we thought. But uncertainty, Matt, cuts two ways. Uncertainty can also mean it's a great deal worse than we thought. And I'm sorry to say that the uncertainty, the realm of uncertainty that we're seeing playing out, not on the scientific modelling, but on the instruments right now, is erring on the high side. And it is important as well to stress, I know we often hear about the IPCC and I've spoken about them many times, but the IPCC tends to follow the path of what's called least drama. It is a, an organisation which is scientifically underpinned, but it has to get 190 governments to sign off on its contents. Those governments are full of petrostates from Saudi Arabia to Russia to the US and Canada, and they're busily trying basically to play down uh, any alarm bells that are ringing in the IPCC reports. It's very important to understand that. Okay. We talk about global boiling and about the hot temperatures, the baking hot temperatures in North America and across parts of Europe. And this has perhaps predictably led to these type of text messages coming in. Not in Ireland, they haven't. Another one says, you're an alarmist. It's been the coolest July on record in Ireland that this climate change, this global warming is not affecting the Irish weather adversely. Sure. I guess the the hint is in the term global. What we're looking at here are global instrumental records. Ireland makes up something like 0.2% of the land surface of the earth. So Ireland's a very small place. And also we know, and we've spoken about this previously, what part of the manifestation of global warming is increased wobbliness of the jet stream. Now the jet stream, as it, it, as it wobbles, because of climate change, it's pulling extremely hot weather up from the tropics, from, from the Saharan Africa into Europe. It's pulling it up from the tropics into Asia. It's pulling it up into North America. But guess what happens? The other side of a wave, Matt, is you can pull cooler air downwards from the Arctic regions. We saw this dramatically in Ireland in 2010 when we had a wobble of the jet stream that dumped hugely freezing temperatures in Ireland. We went to minus 17.5, far and away the coldest ever recorded in Ireland. And that was a manifestation of 
climate change, even though at the time it caused a lot of people to get to get in a, in a spin about it. But in fact, what we were seeing there was a bulge of Arctic weather being pulled down into, into see, the Northern you Hemisphere. You know what people are going to say? Make up your mind, John. Is it getting hotter or is it getting colder? I wish, I wish there were a simple answer. Maybe the easiest way, Matt, to explain this is, is what we're getting is an effect sometimes called global weirding. That's where... Instead of normal temperatures, regular conditions, normal summers, we get extreme temperatures, extreme precipitation events. A friend of mine, for example, who lives in Italy, told me that her solar panels were destroyed by hailstones the size of tennis balls in the part of Italy that she lives in. These are weather conditions that we're not acclimatised to and not attuned to. Maybe it's a little bit out of sight, out of mind, because if we don't experience the hot temperatures in Europe, if we haven't been going on holidays there, we just perhaps don't tend to believe just the impact that it has. And even when we have over the last year had occasional days where we've hit 30 degrees, and 30 degrees is extraordinary for Ireland, it still doesn't come close to the effects of the heat that we're seeing in other places, which are reaching 40 degrees and even 50 degrees. That's right. I mean, I've experienced in recent times in France uh, 40 degree temperatures. I know you've had similar in in very recent times. It's extremely unpleasant. It's probably the equivalent of being choked is the best way to describe it. Uh, When you've experienced those temperatures, remember, we have the luxury of experiencing them as tourists. In other words, we're not going out to do manual labour. We're not having to to commute. These are people who are, we're the most pampered people when we go to Europe or other hot places as tourists. The real issue really, of course, is for people who have to live there who, for example, are trying to to produce food from the fields. We've seen, Matt, for example, this year, a reported 60% reduction in agricultural output from southern Europe. This is absolutely alarming. Now, why does that matter in Ireland? We get a huge amount of fruit and vegetables from southern Europe. So people who think uh, Ireland is in some way disconnected from what's happening elsewhere really need to wake up. No, I think we're going to have our own vegetable shortage for our own production. I think it's going to be down 14 or 15% in tillage farms because of all the rain we've been getting in July. So we have that impact as well. But does that not raise the possibility that if other parts of the world because of climate change, are going to find it hard to get the agricultural output, that this country, with the the temperatures we have here, is that we need to be doing it for others as well as for ourselves, that there is no point in us restricting our output of food, particularly dairy products and beef, if other parts of the world are becoming so parched that they can't do it. Of course, I think what we have to distinguish here is between food production as a as a if you like economic commodity and food production to satisfy the needs of food security we're not a food secure nation we're we're a food exporting nation but we're highly food insecure we import about 85% mat of our fruit and vegetables are imported uh, also of course we import huge amounts of of feed for our livestock we import huge amounts of chemical nitrogen when you add all of that together we're a net calorie importer to the tune of the equivalent of about two and a half million people. So the idea that Ireland is feeding the world, we could but feed sorry, the world. No, uh, but okay. my argument is, is that as the conditions change, we're going to have to make more of a contribution. That Agreed. we will actually have to supply the food that can't be produced elsewhere. I think you're absolutely right. And let me give you an analogy of, of how we can do this and where it's been done. If you take Holland, right? Holland is has got a farming area about 40% of the size of Ireland. It's also, of course, got a population of 17 million. But within that reduced farming area, Matt, they produce seven times more agricultural output. And the reason they do that is they do it under 10,000 hectares of 
uh, greenhouses. They do it high technology farming and they do it, of course, producing food for humans, not food for livestock. And that is the future of food in Europe. And food security depends on our ability to meet the needs of food for humans. And at the moment, uh, the huge effort of our, of our agricultural output in Ireland are enormously productive agricultural output in Ireland is the process of feeding livestock. And that is not meeting basic food security needs, not just for people abroad, but not here in Ireland. Would you eat lab manufactured meat? Sure, why not? Yeah, I've I've eaten, for example, the 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 McDonald's um the the Beyond Meat their version of a burger. It tastes about as good or about as bad as the 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 uh, meat version of it. But yeah, I would choose that in preference uh, to to red meat for the simple reason that uh, the most inefficient way of turning uh, primary energy into calories is for every 100 units amount of primary energy that you turn into beef, you lose 99% of your primary See, energy. I, I can imagine that they will make the taste of lab-grown beef better as things go forward. But what's going to be put into it? What sort of preservatives and chemicals are likely to be put into it? Sure. I mean, this is always the case. And I think uh, if people want to go to lab, lab-grown meat, I mean, so be it. Uh, that we, we get lots of things, by the way, from factories. Uh, we get mobile phones, we get many of the things in our lives, and we don't kind of go... Yeah, we're not eating our mobile no, phones. No, granted. That's we're not putting a, that, them in our body. That's a fair point. But, you know, we get we, lots of the, the drinks, for example, that we do put in our bodies. They actually come out of factories. They're manufactured, processed through factories. So we're pretty used to it. If you have a pint of beer, Matt, I can assure you that that has been produced, manufactured in a factory, under factory conditions. In fact, that means that, that you've got more security for, for, for hygiene and so on. So I don't think the phobia about... Uh, I'm far more concerned about how we feed ourselves. I believe that the, what, what Antonio Guterres has said earlier today, this is a wake-up call, Matt, of the most profound emergency. We're facing into a global food emergency. And in Ireland, we have a wonderful opportunity, as you correctly said, we have a temperate climate, at least for now. We have an opportunity to transition our food to at least uh, to 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 broaden out our food production systems, Matt. There's actually an interesting one here from a listener who says, that person who texted in to maintain this as the coolest July in Ireland is obviously only looking out at the rain but ignoring the fact that the temperature has not dipped below, below normal. Being based outdoors all day, I know this has been very warm every day regardless of the rain. That's right. I mean, I came up from the from the, from the the dart to, to the studio here in the last half an hour and by the time I arrived in here, I was lathered in sweat. It's over 20 degrees and it's also quite humid here in Ireland, yeah. Listener says that McDonald's vegan burger is not lab-grown meat. It's a plant-based burger. That is correct. It's called a patty. It's a plant-based patty. That's correct. So what I was more interested in is some things that, again, there's been furthest... Yeah, what you're describing, Matt, are what are grown from stem cells. And uh, at the moment, unfortunately, it costs about a half a million dollars a burger. But that's only because it's at the development stage. If they get that... Remember, if you're eating a lab-based burger that is grown from plant cells, effectively, you're eating meat. Talk to me about deep sea mining. What's all that about? Yeah, the, the reason that, that this came up, if you like, is that James Cameron, who most people will know of as the uh, director of Titanic, that, that epic of the deep sea, uh, but Cameron is also a, a, an ocean explorer. He's been to the sea floor, for example, and he's got his own little uh, sea craft for doing that. So he's a guy whose opinions, if you like, carry a certain amount of weight when it comes to this. And he's come out with the argument to say that the sea floor, look, sure, we might as well mine it. He said, quote, what you have mostly down there is miles and miles of nothing but clay. Now, the reason 
why this has become an issue is, of course, that uh, the mining industry is casting around for new sources for minerals, for all kinds of minerals. Uh, and part of the area that's now being scoped out is the deep sea, the seafloor. Uh, and the idea basically is, ah, sure, there's nothing much going on down there. We'll just go down and mine it. Now, it the argument which James Cameron deployed, which I'm sorry to say I completely disagree with, is that if we don't do it uh, there, we'll do it somewhere else. In other words, uh, it'll ease pressure on, for example, mining in tropical forests. But of course, the point is this. Nobody's for a second saying that if we start mining the seafloor, that we'll stop mining the forests. So what we'll end up doing is we'll mine the forests, then we'll mine the mountains, then we'll mine the seafloor. So I would argue, and scientists are, are certainly on the same page on this, to say that the seafloor, first of all, is a very complex, incredibly sensitive, ecologically sensitive zone. There are a, One particular survey came up with 5,000 species brand new to science. These are species that are highly adapted to pressure that would, would crush literally a, like a, a steel can would be crushed at these temperatures. So these are amazing uh, creatures that have evolved to live in the sea, in the seafloor. But the point is, they have never interacted with humans. So if we start digging around down there and start exploring down there, the one thing we can say for sure is that we will uh, trigger another extinction event, this time on the seafloor. And it kind of begs the question, Matt, is there anywhere on Earth, from the top of the mountains to the bottom of the sea, that we humans can leave nature alone? John Gibbons, thank you for our weekly environment spot. The last word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today and-